are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Richa Singh, VP HR, Diversity and Inclusion, and CSR at Max Life Insurance. She's also a learning and development specialist and ICF ACC coach and mentor. Good evening, Richa. Thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. Thank you for having me, Sada. It's a pleasure. To start with, can you give a quick introduction to who is Richa Singh? Sure. I'm, you know, usually not very good at doing this, talking about oneself. But as a means of introduction, uh, I'm Richa. I'm based out of Delhi, India. I'm a cisgender woman. My pronouns are she and her. I'm also a single mother who is a mother to a teenage son. And uh, in Workfront, I lead DEI and CSR at Max Life Insurance. I'm also a certified coach and a mentor uh, to young women. I've had almost um, 20 years of experience in the hospitality industry. I used to head learning and development and diversity and inclusion for a group of five-star hotels. And I also helped set up the Keshav Suri Foundation, which is a not-for-profit organization working for the inclusion of the LGBTQ youth in India. Wow. That's quite a lot of things packed into that couple of decades. So you've already touched upon what you do at Max Life Insurance. How did you get started on this equity and inclusion journey and become an advocate? Actually, I love telling that story so that I completely acknowledge my privilege raised in the capital city of India. I had the best of education. I had very supportive parents. Not once, I think, growing up did I ever feel that there was any difference between the way me or my brother were treated, which is actually the case in many Indian families. So that difference was never apparent to me. I went to a co-ed school and boys and girls were treated as equals and healthy competition. So I think this was a blind spot and I kind of grew up with the understanding that I was a very inclusive person. And when I started in my previous organization, this talk about diversity and equity and inclusion was a very fresh topic in India. Somewhere in the year of 2017 and 18, that was also the time when Section 377 got scrapped. So almost every organization I like to say, came out of their own closets and were talking about DEI, Indian and multinational companies. I was fortunate enough to be working in a company that took this agenda very, very seriously. And we were more concerned, I would say, and more focused towards the LGBTQ inclusion front. And I would often ask myself this question that why do we need to speak about this at all? I mean, people are people and everybody is only being assessed on their merit and what they bring to the table. And if that is 
what we are focusing on, then how does it matter what their gender is, what their sexuality is, what their ability or disability is, what their age is? And so many different kinds of diversity that we all bring when we come to work. So when I started working and interacting more with communities, with organizations, NGOs, anti-views, working with acid attack survivors, working with people who had a visual disability or speech and hearing disability, is when I realized that there is so much disparity and inequality and inequity in our modern world. We still have many cobwebs to clear in our heads. And we might come from this place of, you know, merit is king or queen for that matter. And we are absolutely impartial and there is fairness and justice. But we don't realize that the scales are actually not tilted in the favor of the marginalized communities, of the minority community. Everybody does not have the same starting line. And that's when I understood that there is so much work. Absolutely, that needs to be done. And I honestly believe that companies and organizations have this responsibility to the society. We are not just enterprises designed to make profit. We are also enterprises that touch many, many lives. All of our people who come to work also go back home. And if we can influence these people and make a little dent in their very conditioned thought process, and then they go back and talk to their families and their friends and their own little communities that they're part of, I think that's how you really create or ripple effect. So that's how I got involved. And being a woke person is what I thought I was. I realized that, oh my God, there's so much that needs to be done. And hence, I like to talk about it because we actually have so much work to do. Absolutely. Everybody's talking about DEI suddenly after the pandemic. It's also become a boardroom conversation. But is this just a buzzword? And if it is not, why should organizations think about DEI? What are the business imperatives? What are the moral imperatives? How do we need to look at this? That's a great question, Sina. So I always say that DEI has a business case, it has a talent case, and it has a culture case. So whichever way you look at it, it makes absolute sense. And I honestly wonder as to why we had not begun conversation about this earlier. We're talking about it more and more in the year 2020, especially because we were suffering from the pandemic. One of the things that we all understood, especially after the pandemic, is that nobody can move forward by leaving anyone behind. We have to take everybody along with us. So when developed countries were not able to share vaccines for developing countries, we know that the virus was mutating itself, was making itself even stronger, and hence the second wave and the third wave and the fourth wave, which is now again happening around the world. So it is only when the entire world would get vaccinated would we actually be able to get rid of coronavirus from our lives. Why are companies talking about it? Is it fashionable to talk about diversity, equity and inclusion? I would say some of them, yes. And that's the nature of organizations. You know, Organizations are competitive in nature. And when people are talking about the latest buzzword, I'd say whatever gets people on board. Initially, yes, 
people will be curious. Organizations would be curious to understand what is DEI? Why is everybody talking about it? And I would say that's a little part of your battle already won. Because when you have people's attention, when you have got their curiosity peaked, is when you can actually get their mind share. You can actually get their attention in the boardroom and talk about this. Any change for it to be effective has to flow from top down. So I think it's very important that right from the CEO, the CXOs and the leadership of the organization are absolutely convinced of the DEI imperative. It is not something that can be postponed any further. It is not something that you can do at leisure. It is not something that you can say, oh yeah, let's do this in another year or let's do it next year. I think it's urgent and it's important because we've all seen trends like the great resignation. People understood, especially after the pandemic, that what is most important to them is their health and well-being. To summarize it, I would say that this is something that cannot be postponed any further because it affects you as a company. It affects you as a brand. It affects your mere relevance and existence. And if you were to continue being a great organization or even continue to exist and be relevant to your customers, you have to understand that this is what is required and needed today. And it cannot be postponed any further. Yeah, that's so true. You've articulated it very well. So this no longer can be treated as a side project, something in the silo or as a vanity project for next year. It needs to be done now, here and now. And you've also spoken about the importance of getting the CXOs and C-suite on board because that's the starting point. But this is a hugely problematic thing for DEI practitioners because often they don't have the ear of the C-suite. What would your advice be to them on how they can actually get them to listen and pay attention? So that I would say it's like I said, companies are very competitive in nature, right? So one thing that gets the attention of the CEO and the CXO is how is it that the other company or the competition in your environment is doing better? And one of the reasons why they're doing better is because of their focus in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, if you were to elaborate the business case of diversity, I would say that I think the most important thing, and that's where most companies go wrong, is because they think diversity is getting more women into the workforce. Well, that's not it. Diversity is diversity of thought. Because when you have different minds, different experiences, different people coming under one roof and solving a common problem, you will have better solutions. There will be creativity and innovation will be something that will happen very naturally because we all see the world through our own lens. I see the world as a woman and even within the women folk, there is so much diversity. Similarly, a person who, let's say, has a disability would think completely different from you and me who are able-bodied because their life experiences are so different. So something which is completely the blind spot to us and something that we haven't experienced firsthand, we cannot think about that problem. And hence, we cannot think about the solution because for us, the problem doesn't exist. 
So I often take this example of the speech to text or, you know, voice to text. It was actually developed for people with disability. It was developed for people who could not see and they could just simply speak into their device and it would get typed out and that message would go to the person. But today, you know, when I interact with my son, he just doesn't type. He goes on to Google and there's a mic button and he says what he wants to search. So it's benefiting not only people with disability, but people at large. Similarly, ramps, for example. We think that ramps are only meant for people who use a wheelchair. All of us at some point in our lives experience some form of disability or the other. Let's say you have a knee issue and you have arthritis and you cannot climb steps. That's when you understand the importance of a ramp. Or let's say you're pregnant and you understand the importance of a ramp or a lift or an accessible place. So all of these are structural barriers. And hence, I think innovation is something that keeps a company going, that, that makes a company ready for the future. Let's talk about communication. You and I are sitting in different countries and talking in real time and where we can look at each other and hear each other absolutely without any lag. This is innovation. What if nobody had thought of it and people were just content on their phones where somebody had to kind of place a call and some operator would connect you and you you remember those times. And we've seen communication advancement and innovation go up by leaps and bounds and everybody benefits. So we all benefit when we innovate. And innovation only happens when we have different thoughts and different people working for a problem or discovering a problem that many of us don't see. So diversity of thought is really the business case of DEI in an organization. It keeps you relevant, it keeps you current, it drives innovation and makes you a future-ready organization. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I talk about, the great resignation. Many people are leaving and people usually leave. And I say this often that People don't leave organizations, but people leave people. So no longer can people managers and supervisors think that it is not their responsibility to engage with their team. It is everybody's responsibility. And one of the key things that happens during engagement and driving that feeling of belonging is to make those human connections. If I feel valued and heard and respected, I will feel engaged. I will have a longer stint in the organization. And when I will come to work, I will bring my authentic self to work. I will bring my 100% to work, which means that no time would be wasted in covering a part of my personality, which I hide because I don't think that I will be accepted at my workplace if I bring my whole self to work. Oftentimes, people don't understand what does it mean, you know, bringing your authentic self to work. So I'm kind of taking the liberty to explain that what it really means is when I am accepted for who I am and I don't have to hide a certain part of my personality or my life or my status or my orientation and I just be without worrying who's thinking what about me, then imagine that kind of freedom and that kind of mental load taken away from that person. Then that person is there on the job doing their work 
completely 100% productive. And they feel engaged and they feel this is an organization that cares for me, that values me. They know me as a person and not just as a resource. Making that human connection is very, very important. And that is what will help us organizations retain people. So that is really one part of the talent case. I think the other part in which I have seen firsthand, Siddharth, is that there is great talent in the market. And that kind of talent, every organization wants that they should come and work with you. How will you attract talent? And I go out and do campus interviews and I speak to the youth. The youth is bubbling with energy, optimism, and they're full of bright ideas and ideas for the future. How do you attract the youth? How do you attract great talent to the organization? One of the things that talent is asking you right at the time of interview is that what is your company doing for diversity and inclusion? So one of the very often repeated questions when I ask is, do you have any questions for us? That's a very common question. What is it that your company is doing for diversity, equity, and inclusion? So I think it's no longer just an internal exercise. Organizations have to take a stand and act in the public sphere. I think that's very important. Also, I think lastly, when we talk about the business, the brand, you will see many organizations and brands actually, their marketing is focused in such a manner that they are redefining what a family looks like. You are reimagining what a family looks like. It need not be a heterosexual couple. It can be a same-sex couple. Who are you projecting as the breadwinner of the family? It need not always be the man. It can be a woman. Who are you projecting as showing the primary caregiver in the family or the person who is taking care of all the domestic chores? So we're seeing that shift in the way brands are positioning themselves and telling their stories. And the reason they're doing that is because the customers expect it. They demand it. They're looking for it. Because when you do that, you become an attractive brand. That is a brand I want to be associated with because you're forward-looking, you're progressive, you're talking about something that's sustainable. And that's a brand that I, as a customer, want to be associated with. So I think that's really the brand story. And I think that's the business case, but I'll stop here. <laughs> that's true. The imperatives for being an inclusive organization are numerous, both internal, external, just in terms of being relevant, being sustainable, being able to attract the right employees, getting consumers and customers to buy your products. And of course, in business innovation, that's that's a huge one. Um, so thank, thank you for that uh, fairly detailed response. In your experience, what are the biggest challenges to building an inclusive business? I think so now once you have the C-suite on your side and convinced that it is really an imperative and something that we have to do, oftentimes that's the layer where it rests. But really the job of a DEI practitioner or anybody who's kind of shouldering that responsibility in an organization is to reach the employee till the last mile which means that each and every person in the organization should have a basic understanding of what diversity, equity, inclusion is and understand the importance of it. 
and how it affects our work and who we are as people. So where we kind of struggle is really the middle management, I would say. That's one. And second barrier is really that section of people who are called the hiring managers. So one is talking about the environment within the organization. And one is really guarding the gates of the organization. Who do you let in? Let me talk about the culture of the organization and who are these keepers of culture in an organization. Because what we're really saying is DEI is about changing mindsets. You know, it is not a project. It is not a one-time activity. You're changing mindsets of people. For example, the two of us, I'm sure, is a product of years of conditioning. And it's the way we've been brought up. It is shaped when we go to school, when we interact with our friends, where we live, our parents, our culture, our religion, what kind of books we read, who do we mingle with. That's really something that shapes our opinion and our thought process. So whatever ideas we have about the world at large, is pretty much fixed by the time you're in your late 30s, early 40s. And, you know, of course, going up, it's pretty much fixed. Are we talking about changing those mindsets? It's obviously not as simple as it sounds. Like I said, once you have the C-suite on your side of the table, I think few things that are low-hanging fruits are changes you can do in terms of policies and in terms of facilities. So practices and policies is something that can get driven from there. And facilities is also something that you need to build in order to include more and more people. Now, the toughest bit, like I said, is about the mindset. And mindsets can only change with lots and lots of conversation. And I'm so happy to see that This topic of diversity and inclusion is actually quite popular, even when it comes to media. So you will find a lot of articles, you'll find podcasts, you'll find movies, you'll find series on this topic. So I think mass media has a big role to play to change mindsets of people. And we can leverage that. There are lots of interesting books that are out there. And I think we can always recommend that to people. But conversations are very critical and very important. And especially, I think, where people can feel psychological safety. Because we are really asking people to be vulnerable. And being vulnerable is a scary thing for most people, especially at their workplace. We can be vulnerable with our families and find that to be a safe space. But we're asking people to be vulnerable at work. You'll have to create that atmosphere and that environment of psychological safety where people can actually say that, hey, I want to know about this community, but I'm scared of making a mistake and I don't want to offend anyone. So can you help me? Show me what are the correct way? What are the tones? What are the words? What is the right language? when I'm interacting with people, and what do I do when I make a mistake? So it's a very slow process. We have to understand that and we have to make peace with it because like I said, changing mindsets is not something that can happen really fast. And so we'll have to be patient and one conversation will not do it. 
there will be lots and lots of conversations. And I think different tools, like I said, podcasts, there is music, there are series and there are books that are out there in which we can recommend to our people. So in spite of all this talk around DEI and building DEI, India is woefully behind on actual progress because of the legislation that was introduced by the Ministry of Corporate Affairs. We've seen the number of non-executive directors increase, female directors. But other than that, there is a real problem in terms of the numbers on leadership, whether we speak about representation, whether we speak about pay or culture. Why do you think that is? So actually, that's a very interesting topic. And I like talking about, especially when it comes to pay parity. India is behind because traditionally we are a patriarchal society. I'm going to call that out. If you go hundreds of years ago, we were a culture that celebrated women, which was about woman power. And we have many role models. It's a culture that has goddesses and we worship them. But then through the centuries, I would say, there were many practices that were introduced, which kind of broke this down and created rituals rather than an understanding of what was the thought behind a certain practice. This year, we are celebrating 75 years of independence and it's a landmark year for India. Having said that, 75 years have passed and is the condition of women the same as that of men or have women advanced? I would say in many, many phases, we're seeing the first woman in, you know, doing this achievement or that field, you know, being there or let's say leading a battalion or getting into space and so on. Like there are many, many examples, but these are far and few. However, I do not want to undermine the importance of these role models. One of the many reasons why we have not seen so many women into the workforce is because there weren't as many role models. You know, I remember so that when I was in school, I saw a newspaper and I saw the picture of Indira Nui in that newspaper is when I understood that women can be successful in corporate life as well. Before that, my understanding was that women can only be teachers or nurses. At best, they can be doctors and not in the corporate life. So we've seen a huge change and I see more and more women leaders, especially in the BFSI industry, a lot of women leaders in India. However, are there enough? Do we see a 50-50% representation? We don't, right? And we call it the broken rung phenomenon. Women suffer from various complexities. We deal with patriarchy. We deal with the imbalanced load of domestic responsibilities. We have massive life events like marriage and childbirth where we do not find adequate support by our organizations. And hence, even during the pandemic, we saw that the onus of taking care of their families was only on the woman. And then the woman had to choose, do I look after my family or do I go to work? And hence, the choice was pretty simple for most women to make that, oh my God, I can't continue working because who will look after my children or my aging parents? when there is nobody but me to take care of all of this. So I think that's one of the reasons why women tend to leave their careers. And when they do, it's often very hard for them to get back into the workforce. 
And that happens because of a lack of confidence on the woman's part. And I can tell you that because I myself took a sabbatical when I became a mom. And when I wanted to get back to work, I was so grateful to the first person who offered me a job. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you don't know what a big favor you're doing to me. I didn't care about the salary. I didn't care about the position. I was like, yes, I just want to go back to a job. And, you know, I didn't care about the brand. I was like, yes, I just have to get back to a full-time job. Which is so unfortunate because women, even when they take a break, let's say even for maternity, there are so many things that you are learning. Even when you're not going to the job, you're growing as a person. You're learning to deal with ambiguity and how to deal with several responsibilities all in one go. There was a very beautiful ad that I saw recently where a woman is explaining this break in her resume to a person because that's something that recruiters look at with a very raised eyebrow when there's a break in your resume. Uh, oh my God, why did you take a break? It may not be so much in Western countries, but in India, it's a big question mark. Oh, there's a break in the resume. Let's keep this resume aside. They don't even consider the person. They don't even like take a second glance as to understand why is there a break in the resume. So, so I think thanks to many companies running programs like the Second Innings Program, the Career Comeback Program, where we're inviting women who have been on a break to come back to work. And there are these bridge trainings to help them get back to work, not only in terms of building the skills that they may have lost out, but also in building confidence, because that's really where we take a meeting. I spoke about lack of role models. That's the second one. And thirdly, you spoke about pay parity and the gap also overall as to find there is the legislation and we're seeing more women directors, but not so many at the CXO. And I would say it's got something to do with unconscious bias too. Qualities that are seen as leadership qualities, which is a go-getter attitude and knowing what they're doing, being ambitious, taking the team along and being vociferous. These are qualities which are admired in men and not desirable in women. When a woman is displaying the same qualities, it is seen as being aggressive. And uh, oftentimes they are rejected as they are not going to be a good culture fit to our organization. This is stemming from our unconscious biases because in our heads, we know that we want to see men a certain way and women a certain way. And it works both ways, by the way, Sudai, you know. So I know many men who are very much in touch with their emotions, you know, they're sensitive human beings. Even those men are not considered as having those leadership qualities. So it baffles me, but I think if we only have men in suits making decisions about who should get to that boardroom, then you will never see more women. And we all have to challenge our own thought processes and understanding of what we see as leadership. Absolutely true. I mean, there are so many things to unpack here, but essentially I think there is a lot of education that needs to happen at the C-suite level, because if you look at the people who are in the boardroom now, they have not had to learn about diversity and inclusion. And probably they come from a background where they've made their way and they believe that meritocracy works for everyone and it is going to be great. 
And of course, we tend to also look at homophily where you just keep people like you around you because it's a comfortable place to be. I'd really like the thing you said about women returners because we were designing a program for someone and we found that more than the technical skills or specific skills that an organization required, 80% of the requirement is on soft skills, actually. And that was like such a huge learning. But I guess I think leaders have to start looking. They have to take specific steps. It's not going to happen automatically if you want to increase those numbers. I don't think there's a lack of talent. I think there's a lack of vision to include the existing talent and to groom the existing talent to take them to that level. So you're so passionate. It comes across so clearly in this conversation. Which parts of your role fill you with pride and what is the most frustrating part of the role? <laughs> frustrating. Wow. Okay, let's talk about the good stuff. <laughs> what are the things that fill me with pride? I think one of the stories that has stayed with me till now and it happened while I was conducting an interview and we were trying to recruit more people from the LGBTQ community. And I was speaking to a young boy. He was a trans man and his parents had abandoned him. And he was all of 19 years old, Siddha, and he was taking care of his brother, who was, I think, about eight years old at that time. And complete responsibility of himself and his brother financially, emotionally, you know, it's the first time I think I got emotional while taking an interview in my life because it was just unnerving and kind of unsettling and also big question mark on humanity itself. So he always thought that there was something wrong with him and he attempted suicide at a couple of instances. He didn't understand what was wrong with him. He was attracted to girls and he thought that he was mentally unwell. It's only much later when he came across a documentary on the trans women and trans men is that he understood that that is what he truly is. And then he began the whole process of getting onto hormones and surgery and therapy and, and everything. But it's something in my life that I can never forget because when we took him on board, it was a very emotional thing even for him to have a decent job because before that, he was just doing odd jobs and managing the home just like that. When he got a decent job and he was able to live authentically and able to say to everybody, his friends and whatever little family he had that, you know, now his new name and, you know, this is where he works and this is a job of dignity that he's doing and he's able to provide not only for himself but also his brother. I think that was something that is really the high point of my journey in DEI. There are many such moments. There have been very touching moments of parents of queer children breaking down and queer children actually meeting their parents when they are able to understand who they are. And it's not a phase, it's not a tantrum, it's just who they are. So I think that's been amazing. Another story was of a person with speech and hearing disability who we hired and came with the parents and the parents thought of him as a liability and always thought that this person can never do anything for themselves in their life. That person got the job, worked with us, got married and had a kid. So actually their entire life was supported because of 
the one job opportunity that we could provide to them. That's why I say that organizations have such a big responsibility. They don't know how many lives they are changing by offering that one small opportunity. And I have seen that people who have been deprived of opportunities all their lives are the people who work the hardest. You will find them the most sincere, the most loyal, the most efficient and productive in their work. So that's been my personal experience. And that's really what keeps me going. So I derive a lot of pride from that. I think frustrating is almost always people who don't acknowledge their privilege. I come across people, they have everything that they could desire in their life, but they don't acknowledge that the privilege they have, they think that DEI is the job of the DEI practitioner and it's something that has to be done by them and they don't understand. So I think that's frustrating for me sometimes, but that's expected. Like I said, it's a mindset shift, but there's a lot of resilience required for this role. You just can't take no for an answer. <laughs> agree, agree. Everything is not smooth and easy. It's just getting people on board and to acknowledge and understand the enormity and the importance of the role. And also for organizations to understand that they are in such a powerful position to help change, bring about positive change in our society. And they really need to unleash and open up to that opportunity to bring about change. What would your advice be to those starting out on this journey? India has a lot of startups and I see DEI as part of their culture. I would say when my job becomes redundant is when we have become truly inclusive. And I'd be very happy to see that day. We don't need a DEI practitioner in the organization because everybody's inclusive naturally, right? Well, that would be really an ideal world. But we know that we are all different and we have differences, not only in the way we present ourselves, but also the way we think. And today we are recognizing certain set of differences. But that is not the entire universe of diversity that exists. You know, your podcast is called Elephant in the Room. And there is a big elephant in the room in the Indian society, which is called caste. And nobody dare utter the C word, right? Because we are all so scared of mentioning that anywhere. Because we all think that, you know, 75 years of independence, we have come a long way. Nobody thinks about caste. Nobody thinks about religion, but we do. And I know of people who make hiring decisions based on that. You know, it's sad, but it's true. So, like I said, different parts of the world have a different set of diversity that they need to kind of discover and talk about and be unafraid in doing so. Because when you talk about things in the open, without disrespecting anyone, is when you kind of discover this section of people who was completely hidden and their issues, their strengths were just not talked about. And a whole new demographic opens up. So I think one of the things that I would like to kind of say, my advice to people who are just starting out in their journey is to be fearless. Understanding that there is so much work to be done in this field that we can just keep on discovering 
absolutely new angles to this whole journey. If you recall, we started talking about diversity and then we started talking about diversity and inclusion and then it became diversity, equity and inclusion. And now we have people talking about justice and belonging and fairness. So ultimately, I think where we are heading and where we see the end of the rainbow is really a point in time where we are able to recognize the human for who they are and that's it. Irrespective of how they present themselves. It's just the human. What do they bring to the table? What are their skills? What is the knowledge that they have? And how can we work together? If we are able to overcome those differences, and I think at the base of all of this is just kindness. Is just respect. I think if we are able to understand that this is not a check-in-the-box activity, it's not a checklist, it's not a department, <laughs> you know. It's a way of life, it's a culture, it's a mindset. And yes, it's a slow process, but just be at it. Be resilient and just be fearless in your conversations. Absolutely. I think that's so important to ensure that we can enable each and every person in an organization to actually thrive in the best way possible. So we are coming to the end of the podcast and I'd like to ask you, maybe I'll combine the question. So what or who inspires you to do what you do every day and what is on your reading list? <laughs> well, I think inspiration is around us, Sina. In my country, in India, there are extremes. We're a country, we're a world of extremes. So we have the richest of the rich people and the poorest of the poor. We have people who are extremely knowledgeable, well-read and spoken at the most scholarly communities. And there are people who are not educated. Lacks and lacks of people who are uneducated. There are people who enjoy every privilege in their life. And there are people who don't have a square meal in a day. So there is inspiration everywhere I look. And I think as a person, I just like to observe people. I'm more of a listener. And it may not appear that way right now. <laughs> but uh, I like to listen. I like to observe. And I like to listen to people's stories and who they are just beyond their work. So that's inspiring for me. Every day is inspiring for me. I love what I do. And my job itself is a motivation because there's so much that needs to be done. On my reading list, you'll come across as very boring, but I'm reading a book on organizational behavior. <laughs> and there's a course that I'm doing on strategic HR because my transition into HR was purely by chance. I come from the hospitality industry, I was an operations person. I used to work in food and beverage. Then one fine day, I get a call from my boss and say, are you interested in heading the learning and development field? And I was like, why not? Because I've always been up for something new. And it gave me, even till this date, so that when I deliver a session, I sleep with a smile on my face. It just gives me so much joy. So that's been, you know, 15 years of my career. And then when I got into diversity and inclusion, of course, a whole new field opened up. And I think I really found my purpose with this. So, yeah, that's what's happening. <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, that's so amazing. Incredible to hear what inspires you, the people around us, the stories we hear. And of course, the role itself just like motivates you. Like you said, you found your purpose with it. So it helps you to wake up in the morning and think, OK, I have to get started again. 
and yeah. keep going ahead and can't give up on this. So thank you very much, Richard, for this wonderful conversation. This has been so insightful and you've been so open about your experiences and the stories that you have shared. So thank you very much. It's been really interesting and engaging. Thank you, Sudha. I've had a blast and it absolutely came from the heart. <laughs> I didn't have a script <laughs> because I think, like I said, it's very important to be authentic. So thank you. It was absolute pleasure interacting with you. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.